Well, this morning is the second week on the church calendar, second week of Christmas, and we have chosen to uh, use the calendar this year and to think, take some extended time to reflect upon the incarnation and the joy of Christmas again when these momentous um, days occur in the, the memory of the church. They require, require a lingering. They require some contemplation and should not be sped over or rushed over uh, in our thoughts of them uh, and our application of them. So today in our text, we're taking up uh, Revelation chapter 1, the introduction, this is not beginning a series on Revelation, it's just looking at this text again, Again, we preached through the book uh, several years ago, but taking up this introduction to the book because here John highlights Christ, the person and work of Christ in a very beautiful way and again worth our contemplation as we think about what Christmas was and is and how we ought to celebrate and how we ought to reflect theologically upon who Christ is. So let me just read that little bit of a text again, though Mark read all of chapter one. We'll be looking at verses four through eight, this little introduction. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead and ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We're familiar with many introductions to letters in the New Testament. We're particularly familiar with Paul, you know, and and there's, there's a pretty simple greeting as Paul begins his letters, you know, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, something of that nature. But nowhere, I think, in the entire Old Testament do we have an introduction like this, just a rich, uh, theologically rich, uh, rhetorically rich, artistically rich, um, uh, introduction to a letter, and that's what we have uh, here in, in Revelation 1. John just beautifully, uh, uh, theologically, so richly, uh, introduces his churches, and this letter is written to seven churches. You see that in the beginning in verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, he's referring to Asia Minor, you know, uh, Turkey, particularly Western Turkey, uh, right on the, on the coast there of Turkey, uh, seven churches, and this letter was sent to them from the island of Patmos, where John was in exile at the time, and it was sent there, and then it did a little loop. It kind of went up to the to the north, and then out to the east, and then back down uh, around, and to the to these seven churches. Um, and as John writes them, he writes a letter that is applicable to them. We know this because in the next two chapters. Uh, a little note, if you will, is given to each of these churches. And so somebody would have taken this and read it to the church, and then after they had read it to the church, maybe even given them a copy, somebody might have hand-copied it, they were off to the next church and kind of went on this circuit of seven churches reading 
this letter, this prophetic visionary letter to these churches. <clears throat> and so it was to these seven specific churches that the messenger went and read it to the church of Ephesus and then up to the church of Smyrna and then over to the church of Pergamum and, and so forth. And yet, because we know that in the book of Revelation and in the scriptures in general, numbers, all symbols are, are not to be discarded. There's something going on there. Numbers in the book, in the, in the Bible are symbolic. There's a weight to them and not, not a secret code, but th they imply something right? Uh, symbols work that way. They're not a secret code. They're just meant to create resonances in our mind. Uh, they're, they're supposed to tell us something uh, uh, and allow our minds to contemplate something even deeper than just the words themselves say. And so the number seven in the Bible is a number of completion, of purposeful completion, you know. And, and so when this letter is written to seven churches, it is literally to seven churches in Asia Minor. But the fact that it's written to seven churches is not accidental. It's not like, well, there just happened to be seven churches in, on, on that area that it's written to. But in John writing to seven churches, he's writing something that is applicable to those seven and yet applicable to the entire church. That's, the, that's what's meant to be communicated in the fact that this is written to the seven churches. This is, this is something the whole book of Revelation is applicable to them and applicable to to all of us. This is very important when you read the book to keep that in mind. Is my interpretation of this book applicable to the church in Pergamum? You know, again, we know how many people read the book, right? They read it as if it's only applicable to that last generation who's alive when Christ comes again, as if this is a book about the quote-unquote end times, you know, just that last little period of time. But I, I, I'm not sure what the practicality was of that to the church of Sardis, you know, to the church of Pergamum. So when we interpret the book, we have to think through, does this interpretation mean something to that church that was there in 90 AD, let's say, when John wrote the letter? Or is it something that's just applicable to a later generation? You'll know you're interpreting it rightly if it has something to say to them in their day, as well as something to say to us in our day. That's a little interpretive key when you're, when you're reading the book. Well, John launches to these seven churches. He launches into this beautiful, this isn't a, a sermon so much on the book of Revelation as much as it is on this opening to the book. John launches into this glorious uh, introduction, and I want us to just look at a couple points regarding it. First, John's introduction is Trinitarian. And you, there's anytime I have, you get moments like this, it's a good opportunity for us to reflect on the fact that the writers of scripture were soaking in a Trinitarian worldview, right? They saw the world through Trinitarian lenses. And this is important because we tend to be Unitarian thinkers. Uh, we, we tend to be, we, we have an idea of God. And though we know, if, again, if we had, a, if we had a, a, a multiple choice quiz and I asked you, are you Unitarian or Trinitarian? We would, we'd mark Trinitarian. We'd feel very proud of ourselves for getting that theologically right. But I'm not sure that we're viewing the world through Trinitarian lenses. We don't tend to think in Trinitarian terms. But John does. And you see that here. The Trinity is just the, the, the way he sees the world. And when he writes to you from God, if you will, he does it in a Trinitarian way. And so worth reflecting on. So notice how he begins. And you'll notice that there's a little, when we tend to think of the Trinity, even Mark in his opening prayer today, 
referenced Christ as the second person of the Trinity, right? That the Son, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is traditionally how we speak about the Trinity. But you will see in this introduction that that order is disrupted, and there's a reason why he, he does this, but let's reflect on it quickly. Grace to you and peace from, now here we're going to get not just God, but his understanding of God in this triune form. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. So here is John's uh, statement of the Father, that when he speaks of the, he doesn't just say from the Father, he doesn't say from the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. John rather gives us these descriptive uh, uh, terms and, and images of the three persons of the Godhead. And so rather than just saying Father, he describes the Father as him who is and who was and who is to come. So the, 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 uh, the I am, if you will, right? The, these are, except for the last one, these are to be verbs, right? So when, when uh, in the book of Exodus, when Moses encounters God at the burning bush, and he says, what is your name? When they asked me, what was his name? When they asked me, who sent you? What should I say? And he says, you tell them, I am. I am. And John is drawing on that, the I am, and he's breaking it open for us to reflect on. And he does it by saying that God the Father is the one who is, the I am. And the one who was. Right? We're going to here later, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet, right? I am the foundation and I am the telos, the end, the, 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 the goal everything's moving to. I am the beginning and the end. I'm the one who was, I'm the one who is, all right? The I am. So grace and peace to you from him who is and who was. And then he does do a little slippery thing here because he doesn't say and the one who will be forever and ever ages upon ages but he says and the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come he changes the verb from to be verbs to come i am and i'm the one who was and i'm the one who is coming he just changes where your mind goes you think he would say will be but he doesn't John introduces him as the God who is. He's the great I am, but he is the God who is involved in his creation, and he is the God who is coming on behalf of his people. The, the, the fact that God is coming on behalf of his people for John is right in the very nature of who God is. He is the God who comes and delivers his people. He will come and be there to deliver his people and to vindicate his name. And we know that Later in the book of Revelation, in fact, the martyrs are going to ask, how long, O Lord? Is it going to happen? Lord, when are you going to come? When are you going to vindicate your name? And th that's, a, that's a feeling that the saints have had through the ages, right? This, we believe that he will come. We believe he is the God who delivers his people. But as days roll on, as we have to endure tyranny, as we have to endure per uh, persecution, as we have to endure this you know, disease and sickness and the, going to one another's funerals, and we... This, this, this treadmill of trouble rolls on like the martyrs in heaven. How long, O oh Lord? How long? But John, right from the beginning of the book, says he is the one who will come. The I am will come. So this is how he introduces the Father. And we'll see, even in this short little text, he says it twice, because you get this here, and then the end of the text you will see again. I am the Alpha and the Omega in verse 8. The beginning and the end says the Lord, the one who is and the one who was and the one 
who is to come, the Almighty. So twice in this little passage, in fact, that, uh, that name of God, that description of God is given to us by John. And here, in the, in the second one, you'll notice it's in quotes, right? Now, John is recording it as from the mouth of God. It's not just John saying, hey, here's a neat idea I have about God. I'm going to take the I am, and I'm going to break it open for you to think about. He quotes it from God. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I am the one who is and who was and who is to come. I am the Almighty. Don't forget it. And this book is going to give you reasons to forget. You're going to get nervous when you read the book of Revelation, right? And, and remember, Revelation, as, we, as I've said when I preached through it, is really a vision of the age between Christ's first coming and his second coming. If you think about it, though, I just leave you with that. When you read it, don't read it merely as a picture of the end times. We tend to do that because there's some crazy imagery. And we're like, when did that ever happen? So since that hadn't happened, I guess there's just going to be a lot of crazy stuff at the end and beasts and horns and, you know, all that crazy stuff. I guess that has to be end time stuff. It's wild. But don't read it that way. Read it as John's vision, right, imagery in which he is describing through these wild pictures the stuff that is taking place between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. That's what these images are meant. They're meant to be interpretive images uh, that, that help you understand the time in which you're living. Remember, it's meant to be a revelation. That's the name of the book. It's meant to reveal to you what oftentimes your senses don't see. We're limited to but what our eyes see, and it's like in this book, God lets John pull the veil back and let you see what's really true about the world. It's a world full of beasts and harlots and persecutions and a faithful church and a lamb slain yet standing. Revelation lets you see all that. And so when we think about God, he is the one who is and who was and who is to come when we think about the Father. Then secondly, again, in this Trinitarian spirit, grace to you and peace from him who was and is and is to come and from the seven spirits who were before his throne. And here again, the Holy Spirit, notice the third person of the Trinity is placed second because the emphasis of this text is going to be on the Son and he's going to launch into this, this word about the Son. And so he brings the third person into the second place and says, let me deal with the Spirit so that I can, uh, I, I can just wax eloquent, if you will, about the Son for a second. But when he describes the Spirit, he describes the Spirit as the seven spirits. And again, if we have ears to hear, then we understand what's being said. It's not saying, oh, there are seven Holy Spirits. But the seven spirits then are the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the fact that this letter is written to seven churches, which we hear at the end of this uh, first chapter, are imaged in seven lampstands, right? The seven spirits of God are the flame that will light each of those candles, each of those lampstands. Right? It's the Spirit that comes to his church, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold Spirit. And again, just like some of these images are taken from Daniel, that image is taken from Zechariah chapter 4, in which the Spirit is referred to this way, that, that, that image of the lampstands uh, representing the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, the flame of the fire, the sevenfold fire representing the Holy Spirit. So here, John, thinking Trinitarian, Lee 
says, this is from God the Father, grace to you and peace from God our Father, namely the one who is and was and is to come. And then secondly, from the seven spirits, which you'll hear about again if you read through the book, <clears throat> the seven spirits who were before the throne of God. And then verse five, and from Jesus Christ. And here we get to the second person of the Trinity. And this is where now John's focus of his introduction lasers in and focuses now in on Christ. And that's where we want to hunker for a second. And let's just hear that. And from Jesus Christ. And now, just like he breaks open the idea of the Father and lets us think about it and the Spirit by telling us the sevenfold Spirit, here he does so with Jesus Christ as well. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. So he gives us three beautiful images to consider here in talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is he? Who is this one whose birth we've just celebrated and have been celebrating over these days? Well, he tells us he is first the faithful witness. The faithful witness. Now, faithful witness, the word witness in this book is going to take on a little bit of a different meaning. The word for witness is the word that we get our English word martyr from. The Greek word is martyrion. And so Jesus is the faithful witness, but that word witness, as we're going to see in Revelation, is given to many who, of whom die for the faith. That to be a faithful witness is to carry that message all the way to the end even if that should mean one's own death, we carry it faithfully to the end. Jesus himself, when he gave the Great Commission in Acts chapter 1, said, and you are to be my witnesses, my martyrion. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, you are to be my faithful witnesses. But the one who's calling us to do it is himself the faithful witness. Jesus is the faithful witness who calls us to be faithful in him. But Jesus Christ was the one who was faithful all the way to the end as a witness to the truth of God. Right? He was faithful. He was the faithful and perfect revelation of the character and the will of God by his life and by his death. That as Jesus goes to the cross, he is faithfully telling his church what God is like. That God is just. Sin will be punished. And he is merciful. Sin will be forgiven. Our God is both just and he's merciful. And Jesus Christ goes all the way to the cross, even to his own death in demonstrating and declaring it. Indeed, he is the faithful witness. And then secondly, he's the firstborn from the dead. So here we get his death, faithful witness. But he's the firstborn from the dead. He's risen from the dead. Right? He is the first fruits of the resurrection. Uh, now, now our church calendar, you know, we're heading toward that. Now we've come through Christmas, and now we're going to move our way up into the celebration of the death and resurrection of our Lord. But that's where this train's going. Christmas is bringing us to the resurrection through his death, through his faithful witness we have the full revelation of his glory in that he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, again, just think for a minute. These phrases are meant to provide you so much, like poetry. 
images do, you know, poetic images. They, they're meant for you to kind of swish around your mouth like a, a, a good taste of wine or, a, or, you know, whatever. Just you, 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 you taste it and delight in it. The fact that it doesn't just say who was raised from the dead, that would be, that would be fine and that would say a lot. But he doesn't just say your faithful witness who was raised from the dead. He says firstborn from the dead. All kinds of things are there for us. For one, he's the firstborn, meaning there are others yet to come. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he is the firstfruits of the resurrection. That is, he is the beginning of the harvest. He is the beginning of the offspring. That is to say that in Christ, the resurrection from the dead, that climactic event at the end of history, in fact, which, re which Revelation is going to climax with itself in Revelation 20. That that resurrection from the dead has already begun. He's the firstborn from the dead. There's, there you go. The harvest has already begun. Right? Those born of the dead have already begun to be born. There he is. He's the first one. So this, this word, this title, firstborn from the dead, connotes that. But it also connotes something else. The fact that he's firstborn, when we think back in the Bible about what the image of firstborn is, it means that you have authority, that you're the heir. You, you, you inherit all things, and he's the firstborn from the dead. He has victory over death. He has power and authority over death, right? Death has no dominion over him. We read in, Revel in uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 6 in our word of exhortation today. Because he has died and been raised, Death has no dominion over him. He is the firstborn from the dead. That is, he has victory and authority over it. All of these images are there for us in the image of his being firstborn from the dead. So he's the faithful witness, the one who gave his life. He's the firstborn from the dead. And then after he rose from the dead, what happened? He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we see this image of his ascension here as well. He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead, and he is ruler over the kings of the earth. It's not just, oh, he raised from the dead. Isn't that awesome that we, you know, that we have victory over death? It is that. But remember what he says on the other side of his resurrection at the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, he stands there with his disciples, now having been raised from the dead, firstborn from the dead. And what does he say to them? Now, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go be faithful witnesses. Go live now in light of what I've accomplished. But all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And here's John's way of saying that. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, the kings of the earth don't want to give in to this. The kings of the earth don't want to acknowledge this. That's the story of the book of Revelation. The beast will rise out of the sea and seek to crush the people of God. In Daniel 7, the image we read in our Old Testament reading today, right? the beast don't like it. The one beast with iron teeth has got ribs sticking out of his mouth, and he is given to persecute the church, the saints of God. Oh, the beast doesn't go down easily. He refuses to acknowledge what is true, but it is nonetheless true that Jesus Christ is King of kings and he is Lord of all lords. He is ruler and authority over every nation, over every legislative body, over every tyrant, over every ruler, be that ruler democratically elected or some tyrant who rose to power 
uh, illegally. Jesus Christ has authority over all the kings of the earth. That's why he can summon us to go to all the nations because they're all his. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus Christ right now is seated at the right hand of his father and he has been invested with authority over every nation, over every ruler, over every tribe. So John celebrates this and we ought to celebrate it as well. This child born in a manger that we've been celebrating his birth is this one. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the ruler over all the kings of the earth. Now, John can't contain himself at this point. He's giving a greeting, but his greeting rolls in like a, like a, like a wave that's growing, growing, and it's going to crash. So his, his, just even this Trinitarian and Christological greeting swells to a level where it crashes down in doxology and praise. He can't control himself. Right? So, he, uh, so he's the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. And then John launches into doxology. He stops speaking to us and he starts speaking to Christ, the Christ who he describes to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So for John, uh, uh, theology leads to praise. For John, when he talks about Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, the natural response is to sing and to praise. We've reflected on this many times in the scriptures in my years of preaching here, but I, the one that I often think about in light of this, of, of theology leading to doxology, is like Ephesians 1, where Paul gives this magnificent theological sentence, basically. It's almost all one sentence. It's just a long run-on sentence of theology. But he keeps breaking it with praise to the glory of his grace, to the glory of his grace. He just can't stop but letting theology, which, by the way, many Christians find boring because it requires brain horsepower. It requires you to burn some intellectual calories working through the theology that is given to us in the scriptures. It's hard, but it's rich. And while people say, oh, don't, you know, you, you, need, you need heart knowledge, not head knowledge. Head knowledge kills people. It stifles the faith. What we need is we need to inflame people's hearts to the glory of God. Yeah. But how do you do that? For John, his praise is fueled by his understanding of the greatness of God. It's the theology that provides the logs on the fire, if you will for the fire of his passion and doxology and praise to burn. And if you don't have good theology, then all you have are these little, tiny, little tinder bundles that burn up very quickly. They're not, they're not long burners, right? They're just gone. For John, he has big Yule logs to throw on that fire because he has this rich understanding. So he jumps into praise to him. And notice, notice, what he, how he describes Christ here, because you get more. 
He doesn't just say, to him be glory and honor. No, he feels the need to continue going on about him. To him who loved us. Not only is he the faithful witness, he's just the guy who gets it done, who was raised from the dead and who has all authority. But as that, he loved us. He is in relationship with us. Those first three things just tell us about who he is and what he did or what he was given. But now John draws it to us. As such, he is the one who loved us. And what did that love look like? It looked like washing us. He took us who were filthy in our sin and he loved us by washing us from our sins. How? With his own blood. Later in Revelation, you will see the saints robed in white and John will say, who are they? Or they will ask, hey, John, do you know who they are? The angel will ask him. He say, those are they who have been washed white in the blood of the lamb. And they follow the lamb wherever he goes. Right? They are, the, they are the faithful witnesses now. They are those who march behind the lamb and who follow him. He loved us and he washed us from our sins by his own blood. And not only that, notice, and he made us kings. He made us kings and priests to God. Do you see how it, do you see how it mimics what Jesus himself did? He was the faithful witness who gave his own life that having been raised, he might be vested with all authority and power. And now what we're told by John is actually in his death, we died. And on the other side of it, we're invested with authority. Not because we deserve it, but by pure grace, he made us kings. Me? Again, you know, I've referred many times to the church of Laodicea, the last of the churches in Revelation 3 that's written to. And to them it says, to him who overcomes, I will give to sit on my throne with me. He makes us kings and priests to his God and to his Father. To him then be all glory now and forever. And then finally, verse 7, behold, he is coming. And here, though we'll probably need a little time in Sunday school to crack this open a little bit more. But here's that reference to Daniel 7. Behold, he is coming. Now the rest of this book is going to be this, this description of that coming. And I don't just mean the second coming, though that is also implied here because the Father is the one who is and who was and who is to come. But in this little text, notice we have him who has come because he came and he gave himself for us and he loved us and he washed us, past tense. And in verse 7, behold, he is coming. Is coming is present. And in verse 8, he is the one who is to come in the future. He has come. He is coming. And he will come again. And to help us with this, we need Daniel 7 because in Daniel 7, remember in that horrific image with these horrible beasts and ribs sticking out of the beast's mouth and he's given to devour the church. In the midst of that horror, John sees God, the Ancient of Days, seated upon a throne. And then he sees one like a son of man, one that looks just like them, one that is like Israel. And what is he doing? He is coming on the clouds of glory. 
But if you go back and look at Daniel 7 and look at which direction he is coming, from whose perspective is he coming? You will notice that the coming in Daniel 7 is not a coming from heaven to earth, but a coming from earth to heaven. He is coming to the ancient of days. That is, he who represents the persecuted people of God, the seven churches of this letter, in fact, who are going to be persecuted, and the church through the ages who will be persecuted. What does the persecuted church get to see? They get to see one of their own, a representative figure, the Son of Man, robed in glory, coming and ascending to the Ancient of Days. And what happens when he gets to the Ancient of Days? The Ancient of Days bestows upon him all authority and all power and all glory. That is to say, he is the one whose name is magnified and the one who then has authority over all the kings of the earth. And that happened at his ascension, and it is happening right now as the people throughout all nations and all tribes are turning and bestowing honor and glory upon him, that coming, that acknowledgement of his authority and power is happening right now. And it will happen until finally he comes again. And once and for all demands that glory and executes that glory, and all who are not in line with that glory will be cast into outer darkness. He has come. He is coming. He will come again. That is that Advent hope that we thought about before Christmas, where we're longing for the coming of Christ. It's something, again, that we still stand in now. John gives it to us. Behold, he is coming. Be warned. Be excited. Be excited. The Jesus Christ, the, the, the Christ that you serve, the Christ that you worship, the Christ that you sing about even here this morning is the one who is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, invested with all authority, power, and glory. And brothers and sisters, he will come again. And he will set all things right. All the things that unsettle us, all the things that unnerve us, all the injustices that just tear us up. He's got it, and he will come again, and he will set it all right. That is what Revelation is teaching us. That's what this little introduction is teaching us. So rich, John gives it to us just to begin his book. Imagine how great the book is. You know it's great. You know I think it's great. But may we be encouraged this morning and in this Christmas season as we reflect upon who it is that was born in that manger. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the one who is and who was and who is to come. How we thank you that you gave your son, the son of man, to us, for us, that he, being a faithful witness, might be raised from the dead, firstborn from the dead, and like a son of man rising and coming to you, you bestowed upon him all power all authority, all glory. Father, we doubt this. We live in a world. We live in a world in which we see the nations rage like the psalmist does in Psalm 2. We cry out like the martyrs. How long, O Lord? How long will you let this craziness endure? Father, help us to believe in fact that Jesus Christ is seated and vested with all authority, power, and glory. That we might live obediently in these crazy times. 
that we might live obediently, confidently, courageously in the midst of the storm and in the midst of the turmoil, trusting that he who has come is coming and will come again. Oh, how we long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.